evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So I hope that uh, you enjoyed, if you've heard it, last week's show. I really enjoyed making it and The Quaker Comet is definitely one of my absolute favorite stories from history, and so I was really glad to be able to share it with everyone. But tonight, let's start talking about something that is probably very much on all of our minds, which is the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, and why exactly it was so powerful and how it was able to kill so very many people. As of this morning, the death toll was over 20,000 people. And, you know, I've, I've talked about in the past how it's really hard to envision large numbers like that, that humans are really bad at being able to take a number like that and make it have meaning. Um, And so I do understand that, but I think that it's important for us to keep it in perspective. So for instance, if we were to take 20,000 and transpose it into minutes, 20,000 minutes is almost two full weeks. And so that is a lot of time and that is a lot of people. Um, so yeah, obviously, um, if you can help, please do. Um, I'm sure you've heard that and have already most likely done it. Um, but it is really, really devastating. And so let's talk about why it is. Now I want to start with the obvious. Uh, and kind of the reason why I wanted to talk about this specifically tonight, um, not just because it was, you know, in the news and important, which it totally is, but um, it's important to know about the fact that despite our best efforts, researchers are still not able to predict earthquakes. No one is. And so I was watching YouTube the other day and someone had done a um, YouTube video on someone who proclaimed that he had predicted the earthquake. Um, and so I think it was Rebecca Watson. I do want to give credit. So I believe it was a Rebecca Watson video. And so this person, uh, Frank Hoogerbeets, uh, I believe he's Dutch. And so he tweeted out that sometime in the near future, there was going to be a magnitude 7.7 or over, I think, um, earthquake in the region. And then a couple of days later, it happened. And since we pride ourselves on skepticism around here, as well as being scientifically rigorous when at all possible, 
I just want to talk a little bit about the so-called Texas sharpshooter fallacy. And so this is a lot of the way that psychics and uh, people who uh, do fortune telling and things like that, a lot of times they use this uh, propensity of people and it is our propensity to ignore misses while amplifying hits. And so Mr. Hoogerbeats is notorious for making prognostications. And so when you regularly are uh, putting out these ideas and these, um, you know, tweets all the time about something is going to happen somewhere, especially if you have the most basic of knowledge, for instance, that this is a seismically active region, you're occasionally going to get right. And I think it's really important for us to remember that these things are not magic. They are not, um, you know, no one can see into the future, not even the scientists who have studied earthquakes for decades and decades are able to actually um, be successful at predicting them. Now, Another major reason, reason for the, uh, just utter devastation was the magnitude of the two major quakes and their aftershocks. So each released around 50 megatons of energy. That is equivalent to the largest atomic bomb ever tested, uh, by the Soviet Union during the Cold War within hours of one another. And of course, this was then amplified by aftershocks that further collapsed buildings already weakened by the initial shocks. Now, the area is extremely uh, tectonically active because, uh, seismic, seismically active because there are three tectonic plates coming together. The African, Arabian, and Anatolian plates are all grinding against one another in this area. Furthermore, the timing couldn't have been worse. The initial earthquake happened at 4.17 a.m. when most people were indoors sleeping, preventing them from escaping before their homes collapsed. The area is also heavily populated, and in Syria, uh, in case you hadn't heard lately, there is a civil war going on in Syria, and so the area was already intensely unstable to begin with, and there is a lot of damage to uh, cities and infrastructure already, even before the earthquake hit. Add to all of that the fact that the hypocenter, the point at which the fault begins to rupture at depth, was relatively shallow for both of the quakes. This leads to two issues. First, there's less space for the waves to dissipate before they reach the surface, so there's more shaking. Secondly, faults that generate earthquakes with a magnitude larger than 5.5 are more likely to rupture and cause ground displacement, where one part of the ground moves by, in this case, uh, several feet, as in a slip fault. If you think about the San Andreas, that's a slip fault, and you can see pictures of where the fault has had a, um, there's been an earthquake, and you can see how roads and things split. 
Uh, and so obviously this can lead to the offset of roads, rail lines, sewer systems, gas lines, and a host of other, uh, you know, underground uh, infrastructure that can be damaged and above ground infrastructure. And it can also shear buildings. Um, and I don't know to what extent, uh, there was liquefaction, but liquefaction is often also a problem in, uh, especially in, uh, shallow earthquakes. I believe they're more common where basically if you have earth that is not hard packed, it can, uh, basically the seismic waves can cause it to resonate in a way that turns it basically into a liquid. And then everything collapses down because there's no longer a solid foundation under the building. Um, and so that's happened, uh, several times in, uh, I believe California has had a special problems with liquefaction. Um, and I think also in Washington, they've had that issue. And so, in addition, in a recent blog, Professor Hassan Sobilir of the Doku Ilul University Earthquake Application and Research Center, who has studied the region, reports, As far as I can see, at least three fault segments have been broken. The total length of the surface fracture has exceeded 500 kilometers. And so, yeah, it's pretty uh, extensive. And uh, there is yet another thing, which is that in Turkey, uh, they actually started collecting earthquake taxes to retrofit major um, cities and much of the country after a large earthquake in 1999. Now, that was initially done under a democratic left party coalition, which created hundreds of urban green spaces that were meant to be evacuation points so that people could get out of their houses and be in a place where there was no possibility of debris falling falling on them. However, many of the reforms that have been made uh, have since been eroded by the Erdogan government. And so most of those green spaces, for instance, were sold to developers by the government as property values soared. And so insiders blame, obviously, corruption and fraud, um, something that I would say that America is absolutely positively uh, not immune to. So uh, despite the fact that I am very much against the Erdogan government, I don't want to imply uh, that I am throwing stones from a glass house. Uh, I just want to put that out there. But um, so in 1999, the government acted swiftly after the disaster, creating earthquakes, earthquake meeting areas, launching a national earthquake council and dedicating tax revenues to earthquake readiness said opposition lawmaker Gerzel Tekin in an interview with NPR. This was extraordinary work in one year. What did this, Erdogan's, government do? Close the council, spend the tax money, and give hundreds of public gathering zones to their developer friends. And so I think that with the timing of the earthquake, I don't know that this would have been 
tremendously helpful as far as the green spaces, but it was also supposed to be used for things like retrofitting buildings, um, which is very costly. And so, um, you know, I would like to say that if this earthquake takes down the Erdogan government, it's the slightest of slightest of slimmest of silver linings. Um, I would trade any one person who died in the earthquake's life uh, versus that. But, um, you know, maybe that will be something that will happen. Um but obviously, right now, we're just focused on humanitarian efforts. I know that a lot of American teams are over there now and European teams and lots of dogs and um, all of that. But of course, we're several days out now, which means that the chances of finding anyone still alive goes down uh, precipitously at this point, unfortunately. But... Unfortunately, this is also something that is going to keep happening. Uh, earthquakes are one of those things that we literally cannot avoid. Uh, the only way to uh, deal with it is to be prepared for it. Um, and so hopefully this will be another wake-up call for people that we need to be better at retrofitting buildings and creating these sorts of spaces where people can escape to an area that is actually safe and having infrastructure in place for when large numbers of people are displaced by natural disasters. But as with Amer with humans' ability to uh, not be very good at large numbers, we're also not very good at future planning. Um, so that is definitely an issue because obviously, uh, if nothing else has shown us that it is the climate crisis and our inability to project forward in time is really, really doing us a disservice. But let's move on to more, uh, <laughs> sort of normal, interesting science, uh, information tonight and, uh, leave behind, uh, these heavier topics. And so we are going to switch over to, uh, as those of you who have listened to the show before will know is one of my favorite, favorite topics, which is, uh, bird cognition. And so, uh, Tonight, it is not, we're not starting out with our smarty pants friends, uh, like the corvids or the parrots, but we are starting out by talking about the, uh, much more average pheasant, uh, the European pheasant. It turns out that pheasants have a wide range of spatial capacity and that those with a better grip on how to navigate a complex maze in a lab actually will go on to create a larger home territory and do better at avoiding being eaten when released into the wild. And so they also found, uh, in addition to this, which was not actually an initial study focus, but they actually found that birds are much more likely to be eaten when they wander onto the edges of their known territory. And so the researchers, led by the University of Ex Exeter, ch 
chose pheasants because, well, they're relatively easy to to raise in captivity, and they do well when released into the wild after testing. Uh, And so in addition to that, they're large enough to attach tracking devices that allow researchers to uh, track their behavior and their spatial location once they've been released. In the current study, published in the journal Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, the birds were given three tests of their mental abilities. One tested their ability to associate a specific color with a food reward. Another required them to navigate a complex maze in order to access food, which tests both visual and memory systems. And a third where they were placed in a chamber with four exits each of which featured a single piece of food. This tests their visual working memory in order to assess which doors they've already retrieved food from so that they can go to a different one. Once they'd been assessed, they were then fitted with trackers and released into the Devon countryside. Of the 126 pheasants who were ultimately released, 45 were killed by predators within the four-month window of the exterior experiment. In each case, they fell victim to the local fox population. So, yeah, there are definitely lots of foxes still in England, which is a good thing because foxes are amazing. Um, (laughs) As a total aside, um, And so at the end of the four months, the researchers gathered all of the spatial location data and analyzed it. What they found was that first, they were able to identify just just the fact that they were able to identify a home range for each animal was uh, actually uh, quite a nice surprise because the trackers ended up being very, very well designed. Um, I think they were designed by a team from the University of Jerusalem, but... uh, I'm sorry, I forgot to note it. And so they were able to really pinpoint where the animals had been. And so again, they found uh, that the home range size was actually not correlated with two of the three tests, but with only that third test, that of navigating the maze. That showed a strong correlation with those doing better, having created larger home ranges once released. And again, as noted, the clearest result the researchers found was that when the pheasants strayed from familiar territory, they were more likely to face predation. The researchers noted that this was not because they strayed into more dangerous territory, as many had wandered into the home territory of other pheasants. It was almost certainly how they responded to the predator in that particular spatial location. Avoiding predation was correlated with doing well on both the maze and multiple exit room challenges, which test visual working memory. Doing well on just one test conferred no advantage, but surprisingly, performing poorly on both tests also seemed to convey protection from predators. For pheasants, Experience within an area is much more important for predicting whether they are killed by predators than how dangerous the area is itself, said lead author Dr. Robert Heathcote, now at the University of Bristol. 
ambush predators like foxes are quite habitual in their hunting behavior, so the, so local pheasants may learn particular locations where foxes prefer to stalk their prey or lie in wait. Another explanation is that, with time, pheasants might gain more knowledge about the fastest and safest escape routes should they be attacked. Our study suggests this might cause pheasants to evolve better spatial memory, allowing them to expand the region that they have detailed knowledge about. Now, there are limitations to the study. First, other researchers have conducted similar experiments and haven't always gotten results that match these. Second, the birds were raised in captivity and thus probably missed out on any wild-type parental guidance that might be conferred about avoiding predation. Now, if you assume that these results can be transferred to wild populations, it suggests that having a home turf, so to speak, is associated with better survival. But they stress it's unclear whether this is because the birds have a heightened predator avoidance ability in their home ranges, or that they are more able to, to use the landscape of a familiar area in order to avoid predation. And so uh, that is yet to have been teased out. Finally, there is some weak evidence that spatial cognition skills are, uh, or there's some evidence that they are weakly inheritable in pheasants, so, with predation leading to the deaths of pheasants with less spatial cognition skills, this might be a mechanism for evolution to select for more intelligent brains. Our findings show that basic spatial abilities revealed by tests and mazes related to real-world space use in the wild and, crucially, affect the survival of individuals in the face of predation, said Dr. Joa. Madden from the University of Exeter, we demonstrate that knowing about an area helps pheasants stay alive, and this means that these cognitive abilities can be shaped by natural selection. We now understand a bit more about how cognitive abilities can evolve. So that's really fun. Now, pheasants might not be, again, the brainiest of birds around, but that title might just have a uh, cause to be awarded. And so now we are going to turn to uh, Goffin's cockatoos, which uh, have a great history of tool use. This is something I've talked about before. And new research suggests that they can not only use a single tool, but can also use tools as a set and will actually be able to carry them around for when they're needed. Now, this is a behavior that had previously only been observed in chimpanzees and humans. Now, again, this is distinct from the much wider group of animals that have uh, single tool use uh, abilities. So dolphins, crows, all sorts of other animals uh, are in that um, category. But this is about using an actual tool kit. And so, uh, as noted, we've previously talked about how these very smart birds, who originate from a small archipelago in the Maluka region of Indonesia, 
used sticks to reach nuts trapped behind fencing in the laboratory. And that was something that they did spontaneously. And the researchers just, you know, happened to film it and were like, oh, okay. So then <laughs> uh, it led researchers to uh, decide to teach them how to play a sort of uh, a rudimentary sort of game of golf. And so in a 2021 study in the journal Current Biology, wild-caught goffins cockatoos were found to use up to three different tools to extract seeds from a particular fruit. But at the time, it wasn't clear if they thought of the tools as a set or as individual items. The wild birds used three separate tools, a sturdy tool for wedging, a slim tool for cutting, and a long, broad tool for spooning. However, uh, the reason that they weren't quite sure what was going on is that the birds kind of make them as they're going along. And so there was some idea that they might think of them as separate tools for separate subsets of the uh, puzzle toward getting the seeds out of the fruit. Now, so this latest study, which is also in current biology, but comes from a separate team, shows that wild-caught birds could use tools as a set and even carry them around for when they might be needed next. For the latest work, researchers set up a station where a cockatoo would have to retrieve cashew nuts from behind a clear sheet of plastic with a short pointy stick to break the barrier and then fish out the nuts with a long plastic straw. It was based on the termite fishing of Gualogu Triangle's chimpanzees. Nothing like this had previously been observed in wild birds, so the researchers were confident that they weren't using previously gained knowledge. Seven of the ten birds successfully extracted the nut, with two of the seven, Figaro and Finney, completing the task within the first 35 seconds on their first attempt. Six of the birds passed the proposed threshold of nine consecutive trials. Successful trials. After Figaro and Finney, a male and female respectively, two more solved the problem in their second session, two more in the third session, and the final bird, Mookie, an adult male, solved it later in the sessions, but only on a single trial. With these experiments, we can say that, like chimpanzees, Goffin's cockatoos not only appear to, to be using tool sets, but they quote-unquote know that they are using tool sets, study lead author Antonio Osuna Mascaro, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Veterinary Medicine in Vienna, Austria, said in a statement. Their flexibility of behavior is stunning. And so next, they set up two boxes, one where both tools were needed and one where only one tool was needed. The cockatoos had to act according to the problem. Sometimes the tool set was needed and sometimes only one tool was enough, Osuna Mascaro said. During the second round, some birds picked up one tool, dropped it, picked up the second, before returning to the original. The birds who did this kind of switching 
uh, performed overall, better overall on the task. Lastly, they tested whether the birds would take their tool sets with them to another place. They set up a situation where the birds had to either fly or climb a short ladder in order to get to the cashew puzzle box. They found that the birds carried the tools together by shoving the stick inside of the straw and carrying them in their beak as a single item. We really did not know whether the cockatoos would transport two objects together, study co-author Alice Auersberg, a cognitive biologist at the University of Veterinary Medicine in Vienna, said in a statement, it was a little bit of a gamble because I had I've seen birds combining objects playfully, but they very rarely transport more than one object together in their normal behavior. As in previous trials, the birds had to determine if they needed one tool or both. Most made an assessment and only took those tools they needed, though some did have to return when they assessed the situation incorrectly. The team next plans to continue studying the cockatoo's decision-making and metacognition, the ability to recognize their own knowledge. So that is pretty cool. Um, there are lots of great videos on the internet of uh, cockatoos and other parrots um, in Australia, New Zealand, and other places um, doing all sorts of extremely intelligent and cheeky things. Uh, wild um, animals. Obviously, animals that are in captivity also have been shown to do amazing things. And so, yeah, this this group of uh, birds is definitely highly intelligent. And it's going to be interesting to continue to see just how uh, far their intelligence is and how much it mirrors our own. But at this moment, we are going to take a break for some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we are going to uh, shift topics. And first, we're going to talk about a new kind of water ice. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. 
Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as I mentioned before the break, we are now going to be talking about water ice. And the reason we're talking about water ice is actually because water is weird. Um, (laughs) it, It really is. It may be one of the most ubiquitous substances on the earth, but it's also got a lot of really interesting properties, some of which we still don't quite understand. And so in this instance, a team of researchers have recently created a kind of amorphous ice that is actually quite similar to liquid water rather than solid ice. The amorphous molecular structure of the ice, dubbed medium density amorphous ice or MDA, allows the solid to act much more like a liquid and importantly has a similar density. We know of 20 crystalline forms of ice, but only two main types of amorphous ice have previously been discovered, known as high-density and low-density amorphous ices, said study co-author Christopher Salzman, a material scientist at University College London. The accepted wisdom has been that no ice exists within that density gap. Our study shows that the density of MDA is precisely within this density gap, and this finding may have far-reaching consequences for our understanding of liquid water and its many anomalies. And so, to obtain this loosely structured ice, the team shook ordinary water ice in a jar full of steel balls cooled to around negative 376 degrees Fahrenheit, That's negative 200 degrees Celsius, because Celsius is much better at calculating uh, for these kinds of uh, temperatures involved with water. Uh, Fahrenheit is better for uh, sort of what's what temperatures are going to be out today. But uh, when dealing with things like this, Celsius is always much more rational. (laughs) That is my pitch for the metric system for tonight. And so this method is called ball milling, unsurprisingly. Uh, It uses mechanical forces to break up the molecules. Smashing the ice against the steel balls causes it to be pulverized, and thus MDA kind of looks like white powder, uh, even though it is a solid 
and it has the molecular composition of liquid water. We shook the ice like crazy for a long time and destroyed the crystal structure, said Alexander Rosu Finson, a researcher at UCL and the study's lead author, in a press release. Rather than ending up with smaller pieces of ice, we realized that we had come up with an entirely new kind of thing, with some remarkable properties. Having found a form of ice in the density gap means that researchers will need to reevaluate the behavior of water and water ice in different and especially in extreme conditions. And in fact, MDA also has another weird trait. When the material recrystallizes into ordinary water ice, it releases a large amount of heat. The scientists believe that this phenomena could actually have geophysical implications for ice on the surface of icy moons like Europa. Amorphous ice in general is said to be the most abundant form of water in the universe, said co-author Angelos Michaelides, a chemist at the University of Cambridge. The race is now on to understand how much of it is MDA. So again, water is much weirder than you think it is. Um, It is one of those things that you think it's just water, but water is still a very active uh, area of research for scientists. And there's still a lot of it that we haven't figured out yet. But moving on to uh, places that are also super cold, uh, let us move out into the vastness of space. Now, of course, technically, space isn't cold in the sense that we think of, because there aren't there just aren't enough molecules for there to be heat transfer, which is kind of different from um, traditional cold. But uh, you know, that's that's the kind of splitting hairs you get around here. Um, I feel uh, is just that you deserve those kinds of split hairs. Anyways, <laughs> uh, there is news that 12 new moons have been found orbiting Jupiter, catapulting it to now having 92 confirmed moons, which means it now uh, takes the top spot away from Saturn, with Saturn having 83 moons. And so these new moons are pretty darn tiny. Uh, they are from 0.6 to 2 miles wide. Um, so, you know, they're not exactly like our moon or one of the Jovian moons. I mean, one of the um, Galilean moons. Um, and most of them have wide orbits, but they are moons nonetheless. Nine of the moons require more than 550 days to orbit the gas giant, according to an article in Sky and Telescope. They are also in retrograde retrograde motion, which means that they orbit Jupiter in an opposite direction from the rotation of the planet itself. This suggests that these moons are almost certainly not original to the system, but were captured asteroids that fell into the gravitational well of the gas giant as they were uh, moved out of the Kuiper Belt or some other area in the solar system. 
Now, the moons were actually discovered back in 2021 and 2022 by Scott Shepard, an astronomer at the Carnegie Institution for Science in Washington, D.C. He alerted the International Astronomical Union's Minor Planet Center, which tracks all reports of small bodies in the solar system. But in order to be officially designated, the moons had to be tracked for a complete orbit. And as some of them were 550 days, it took a while. But now at this point, all 12 have been confirmed. And um, so, yeah, it's really interesting to have these new tiny satellites. And of course, Jupiter and uh, Saturn also have all sorts of tiny as well as large moons. And of course, Jupiter's best known moons are the Galileans, uh, which were first observed by Galileo in 1610. Now I say first observed by Galileo in 1610 rather than first observed in 1610 by Galileo. Um, I'm not exactly sure how to emphasize it, which way is better, but what I'm trying to say <laughs> for all this is that there is you know, a little bit of doubt as to whether he was truly the first to see them. He was certainly the first to sort of talk them up and write them up and things like that. Um, but uh, I was just listening to a podcast about Galileo recently, and it turns out that he was quite the uh, operator and uh, was a bit more Edison in his style than I had previously realized. And so um, it was really interesting to find out that he was a lot more the kind of person who would see something and be like, ooh, I want to cash in on that, uh, not to detract from him. I mean, obviously, he was and still is an icon of astronomy, but um, it was really interesting to hear about um, some of his other uh sort of um, stories about his life and some of the things that he did that weren't necessarily the most scrupulous. Um, so yeah. Anyways, uh, Io is known for lava lakes and huge volcanic eruptions. Europa, uh, as we know, I'm sure all of us, has an icy shell and an inner water ocean. And we totally want to know what's in that ocean. <laughs> Ganymede is the largest moon in the solar system and is actually, in fact, larger than Mercury. Uh, and finally, there is Callisto. Uh, and Callisto is remarkable for being the most cratered moon in the solar system. Um, so probably not the bell of the ball, but still worthy of uh, our love. <laughs> So two missions are actually currently planned to head toward these moons. The ESA's Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer, or JUICE, is set to launch this year. And in 2024, NASA is set to launch the Europa Clipper, which is very exciting to get a more intimate view of Europa. And so I don't know about you, but I am super excited about uh, the Europa Clipper. I am absolutely dying to know what they are going to find on Europa. And so, especially with all of the, you know, advanced 
gear that we have now in the year 2023, um, as opposed to during, for instance, the 60s and 70s. Okay, let's move on now and talk about the dwarf planet Kuar. And that's (laughs) Q-U-A-O-A-R is how that is uh, spelled. Now, it is one of the few dwarf planets that actually has a name. And now there might be a reason for it having earned having a name for itself. (laughs) Astronomers have discovered that there is a ring system around the planet. And the ring formation is so far away from the planet that it actually should be impossible. And so Kuar is around half the size of Pluto and orbits beyond Neptune. Now it's the third minor planet to be found to have a ring and the seventh in the solar system when you add the more major rings of sort of the outer planets, Saturn, Jupiter, Neptune, and Uranus. The six previously known Planets with ring systems all have rings which are quite close to the surface of the planet. So this really challenges our ring formation theories, Sutton study co-author Vic Dion, a professor of physics and astronomy at the University of Sheffield in England, told Live Science. It was previously thought to be impossible to have rings that far out. So in a nutshell, the ring of Koar is a real challenge to explain theoretically. And so the ring orbits at a distance of seven planetary radii away from the planet. Now, this is around twice as far as the previously theorized maximum limit for a ring system called the Roche limit. So, for instance, Saturn's rings are just three planetary radii from the planet. Rings that are formed outside Roche limits aren't meant to be stable. They should rapidly accrete into moonlets, using up all the ring material, Dion said. With this discovery, we have a ring not just outside the Roche limit, but way beyond it. And so, inside the Roche limit, rings are created when moonlets collide and disintegrate into a ring of rock, ice, and dust particles. The debris can't reform into moonlets because tidal forces from the parent body continually rip them apart, preventing further formation of moons. But obviously, this isn't the case with Koar. We've got to find some way of stopping that moonlit forming that far out, Dion says. The particles in the ring are colliding all the time, and if these collisions are elastic, it means the particles can't stick together to form a moonlit. Now, the collisions would be elastic, with the objects bouncing away from each other rather than clumping together, if the ring particles have an icy, an icy outer coating, suggests Dion. However, more data will definitely be needed to assess whether or not this is the true cause of the rings. Now, the odd object was found during a survey of Kuar to determine if the minor planet had an atmosphere. The researchers, using a telescope in Spain's Canary Islands to view the planet during an occultation in front of a background star, 
used a telescope. They found a dimming of around 5 to 10% before and after the main body of Kawar passed across the star's light. The entire observation lasted less than a minute. The discovery came as a bit of a surprise, Dion said. We knew there was a possibility we might find them, but we really weren't looking for them. Now, unfortunately, the ring is too small and too faint to be directly imaged, even with, say, the Hubble Space Telescope. The only way to visualize it would be to send a probe to the area. This discovery shows you the amazing diversity of things that are in our own cosmic backyard, Dion said. You don't have to look light years away into the distant universe to find the unexpected. Surprises are still a plenty in our own solar system. And in fact, surprises are still waiting for us in basically our backyard or maybe uh, more aptly under our feet. <laughs> and so researchers have discovered a new layer of molten rock beneath the Earth's crust located around 100 miles below the surface which might give us new insight into the geophysics of tectonic plate movement. And so new data from the University of Texas at Austin suggests the presence of a partly molten layer of rock beneath the surface, which might help explain some of the finer details of plate tectonics, but not in the way you think. <laughs> I had to read this uh, paper twice before I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so longtime listeners will know that the very idea of plate tectonics is shockingly new, having only been truly adopted by the scientific establishment in the late 60s, and much due to the excellent work of the pioneering scientist Marie Tharp, who battled a whole ton of sexism in order to get ahead and to get people to uh, adopt plate tectonics. Um, her uh, There's a famous story about how Jacques Cousteau poo-pooed her and then had to sort of eat crow, um, which is one of my favorite stories. But anyways, researchers have previously found patches of melted rock at this depth. But the new research published in Nature Geosciences suggests the molten rock is more widespread. The team, led by Junlin Hao, analyzed seismic data to identify the molten layer part, sorry, the molten layer part of the upper part of the mantle called the asinosphere. And it most likely has actually little to no bearing on how Earth's tectonic plates move over the mantle. When we think about something melting, we intuitively think that the melt must play a big role in the material's viscosity, said lead author Hua, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Texas Jackson School of Geosciences in a press release. But what we found is that even where the melt fraction is quite high, its effect on mantle flow is very minor. Instead, Hua's team suggests that convection currents in the mantle are the cause of the movement. 
We can't rule out that local, locally melt doesn't matter, said Thorsten Becker, a co-author on the paper and a professor of geology at the University of Texas, Austin. But I think it drives us to see these observations of melt as a marker of what's going on in the earth and not necessarily an active contribution to anything. And so basically what they're talking about here is that they've found that while there is large patches of a layer of semi-molten rock at this depth, uh, it's not acting as a low viscous surface on which the plates can move. So if you think about um, if you've ever seen a video of something moving because there's a layer of water underneath it, that's kind of how people would think about it is that you have this, uh, you know, sort of viscous, low viscous uh, surface underneath the plates that allows them to move. And you would think, oh, well, this would be the perfect, uh, you know, explanation for that. But what the researchers are saying is that, no, it's actually not true. <laughs> this isn't actually doing that because it's not actually achieving a low viscosity. Um, basically, it's just a layer of semi-molten rock that absorbs seismic waves. Um, so it's more like the way that a liquid absorbs energy from a bullet, I would say. Um, and that's my analogy, so it might not be quite correct. Um, but that it doesn't really affect plate tectonics in any way. It just is a cool thing we learned about. Um, so, you know, sometimes that's how things work out in science is that you think you found something and you think, oh, maybe this goes with this thing that we don't quite understand yet. And it turns out that, nope, it's just a cool thing that we found out and it doesn't have any bearing on anything else. Um, so right now that seems to be what they're saying is that they found this cool thing but it doesn't necessarily give us the answers about plate tectonics, which means that we still have work to do on plate tectonics, which is the insight. Um, so yeah, I thought this was um, a really interesting article because of that sort of twist where it's like, oh, we found this thing. Is it? No, no, it's not. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, we still have yet to determine exactly what fuels plate tectonics and how all of that works, despite the fact that we now know it's a real thing. Um, and unfortunately, uh, we started out tonight with a absolute demonstration of the fact that it's a real thing because the earthquake in Turkey and Syria is directly related to the interaction of those tectonic plates. Um, unfortunately. And so it'd be great if we could learn more about how that happens because, you know, a lot of these things are interconnected. So if we learned more about how the plates move, we might learn more about how earthquakes occur. Um, and so, yeah, unfortunately, again, we just don't know yet. There's just a lot of things about the world that we just fundamentally don't know or just fundamentally can't predict. And again, humans are also bad with uncertainty. And so it's the reason why people subscribe to the fact that, uh, you know, some random Dutch tweet could be predictive of an earthquake because that grounds us in an idea that the world is orderly and has ground rules and safety rails. But sometimes it doesn't. And 
that can be both beautiful and terrible. Um, and so I definitely think that there is beauty in the unknown as much as there is terror. Um, but with that, uh, that is all the time we do have for tonight. Um, I was hoping to maybe talk a little bit about my philosophy on GPT chat, but maybe we'll do that either next week as a special or in two weeks. Um, it doesn't freak me out. <laughs> that is that is the long and the short of my um, <laughs> TED talk on this subject. <laughs> but obviously, there's a lot more to say. All right. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.